And our reading today is from 1 Samuel 4 and 5. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the opera, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this opera? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured.
After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with the tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. This is God's word. You have no idea how tempted I was to begin the sermon by watching the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> it's a great film. <laughs> if you've not seen it, seriously, watch it. It's brilliant. But anyway, um, we have more important matters. We have got a sobering passage, actually, to look at. Let's pray for God's help as we do so. Father God, we pray that you would, uh, you would help us that you would show us where we might be in danger of the attitudes shown here. And we pray instead that a holy reverence would fall upon us for our good and for your glory. Amen. Now, electricity is incredibly useful stuff. Pretty much everything we do these days involves electricity. And you can quickly just get blasé. I mean, you've got it in your pocket, in your phone, from the battery. It causes the lights in the building. Basically, everything around us. And you, you can just forget quite how dangerous, actually, electricity is. There was a, a chap actually used to be here at CCM, a friend of mine, and a couple of weekends ago, he was doing some DIY. And he, uh, he got out his, uh, his biggest drill. And what he didn't get out was a plan of where the mains electricity was running. He drilled down, and this is what happened. Yeah. Now, I should just clarify, it's not that his body was incinerated, and, that, <laughs> and that's all that was left. Um, but that's what, that's what happened to his clothes. It was, he said it was absolutely terrifying, actually, absolutely terrifying. You don't mess with electricity. It is just powerful stuff. 
Now, 1 Samuel 4 to 7, they are a reminder, don't mess with something far more powerful than electricity, far more dangerous than electricity, the living God of the Bible. Now, he is not like electricity in many ways. He is moral and personal. He is good and he is kind. But he is very powerful. And we are warned here against treating him like our pet or underestimating who he really is. And these chapters, they really are, they're a call to you and me to metaphorically take our shoes off as Moses did at the burning bush and to fall on our knees before this God. To treat him as the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One, the Creator, the King above all kings. They warn us. And I found it quite a sobering warning as I've reflected this week against treating him as my own personal genie whose basic job is to bless my plans and answer my prayers. See, if, if I behave like that, I'm actually not worshipping God at all. I've just created my own little idol. Now, we're in 1 Samuel. We're um, working our way through it. And 1 Samuel... In a sense, it is the story of God raising up a king to rule his people, Israel. That's the big story. But the Israelites, God's people, will not be ready for a human king unless they have learned the two lessons that are at the heart of this passage. Lesson one, God is not going to be their pet, their genie. God is not going to just do whatever this king asks because he's the king of God's people and what he decides God will just Bless. No, the the king is going to be his representative, not his master. And secondly, that he, the living God, is their hope in the face of enemies. A king leading an army is not the hope of Israel. It's God ruling in heaven. And we'll see why that is. Okay, firstly, the Lord defeats a people who thought he was their pet. So back to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. It's interesting, with that brief mention, Samuel drops out of the picture. Strange if you've been here the last few weeks. Other than the first phrase, he was nowhere to be seen in these two chapters or in the chapter to come, actually. And I think that's actually very important. It means that the the narrative at this point is not driven by some great human leader who's got a plan. Israel doesn't get a king because, well, unlike Eli, Samuel has a vision to guide them to a monarchy. No, it is God who is going to bring down Eli's corrupt regime as he's promised, and it is God who is going to raise up the king that Israel needs. So the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The, Philistine, the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. Pause, don't worry, we're not going to go this slowly all the way. But who are the Philistines? The Philistines are the bogeymen, the bad people throughout 1 Samuel. They're the enemy of God's people. Um, there's a, there apparently is a Philistine. Boo, you meant to say. Um, he uh, has impressive hair and he looks very mean. There you go. Now, there are coastal people, and if you look at the map, you'll see that uh, they're, they're down in the, this is um, just the bottom part of Israel. They're down in the southwest of Israel. 
But they're basically, they're the Vikings of the day. They've started uh, sea raids. They're going further and further inland. And they've started not just to raid and to destroy and pillage, but also to settle and to rule and to oppress. But, but before we place too big a gap between ourselves and the Israelites, I mean, we're not really being raided by military forces at the moment. I guess if you're in Ukraine, you, you, know, you might have some understanding of what it feels like to have oppressive, fearful forces massing on your border. Actually, there is another way to think about the Philistines, which reduces the gap between us and them. And that's this. The Philistines are the external pressure that reveals the heart of God's people. In that sense, they're they're actually no different from the things that you and I face today. Uh, Things like health struggles or opposition to our faith or temptations or wealth or work pressure or unanswered prayer. Things that reveal whatever we sing with passion on Sunday, they reveal where I really trust, what I really love, what I really hope in. It's when those pressures come into our lives that the reality of our faith is revealed. Okay, so what does the Philistine attack reveal about the faith, the hearts of the Israelite leaders? Verse 2, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 or four units of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. I don't know whether you notice what's going on there, but What is revealed is a people who are marked not by faith in God, but by superstition, who treat God as a genie, an amulet, a religious charm. So they they suffered this uh, minor defeat in the first skirmish, Uh, not a massive setback, uh, a small setback, but not a catastrophe. Uh, So what do they do? Well, it looks quite godly, actually, when you, when you read it first. Uh, you know, they recognise it is God who has brought this defeat. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it must be his doing if they've lost. And they, they ask the right question, why has the Lord done this? But do you notice what they don't do? They don't wait for God's answer. Yeah, chapter 4 begins, Samuel's word came to all Israel. Samuel brings the word of the Lord to Israel. We've been hearing in chapter 3. So surely... You've got a question, why has God done this? You ask the one prophet in Israel who can tell you what God is doing. No, they don't need to bother with that. We know perfectly well. We know what we'll do. We'll summon the ark, verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Let's hit pause just for a second. The Ark. Um, The Ark is central to the whole section. It's mentioned 37 times just in in the three chapters, the two we're looking at and the one that's after it. And the ark was a, it was a wooden box that was three foot long, foot and a half wide, foot and a half high, and covered in gold with two cherubim, angels, on the top. 
and the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments are inside. And the, the ark was at the centre of Israel's worship of God. It was inside the, the tabernacle that later becomes the temple. It's where God symbolically dwelled. And actually, more than that, it's where God ruled. Uh, the, the verse that I think we, be, we began the service with from Psalm 99, it says uh, again and again in the Bible, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. So the ark is it's God's throne on earth. The ark is about God's relationship with his people and his rule over them. Now, do you notice they call it the Ark of the Covenant three times in these verses, verses three to five? What they're really doing is they're saying, the Lord God made a covenant. He made a promise with us. So if we have his Ark, he's got to bless us. He's got to protect us. He's got to win the fight for us because we're his. You know, we're his people. He's on our side. They act as if God just has to give them victory. It's superstition. So long as this thing is here, we'll win. You know, God is our pet. He's on our side. He does what we want. As long as we perform the right ritual, put the ark in the right place, victory's guaranteed. They don't for a moment consider whether the problem might not be ceremonial but moral. Whether the initial defeat might have had something to do with the sin that is rampant in Israel whether the ultimate problem is, is not the absence of the ark from their camp, but the absence of holiness from their hearts. So the priests, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, Eli's sons, they bring the ark, no doubt, with great ceremony, and all the Israelites cheer and roar, and the ground shakes with their enthusiasm. And they feel courage. And now you think they just have to win. It just sounds like they're going to win. But if we've been reading through 1 Samuel, then the mention of Hophni and Phinehas has a very different flavour for us. We remember God declared in chapter 2 that his judgment on Eli's wicked regime was that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die on the same day before Eli. So as we hear there's a battle, and we hear Hophni and Phinehas are near the battle, we feel rather differently from the Israelites. But on the surface, it continues to look like a resounding victory for Israel. It has to be on the cards. Verse 6. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They're the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. The Israelites are making the ground tremble and the Philistines are trembling in their armour. I mean, I find it amazing that they've heard and they know about what God did in Egypt. I think surely there's only one outcome. You've got an excited, enthusiastic army, confident of victory with the Ark of the Lord and a bunch of people literally shaking in their armour, ready to run. But suddenly everything is turned on its head. As the Philistines say, be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 
foot soldiers. The ark was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That is not what the Israelites assumed God would do if they brought his ark into their camp. Now, I guess the movie of this would spend ages on the battle, but the account here is very sparse, just two brief verses. But 11 verses cover the report in Shiloh. And it's a tragic scene full of irony and pathos as God's word of judgment is fulfilled. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. The camera cuts to the town gate and a blind man watching the road. He hears the commotion, but he cannot see what would have been obvious to everybody else just from the appearance of this man who's fled the battle. And Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and his eyes had failed, so he could not see. He told him, I've just come from the battle line. I fled. Eli asked, what has happened, my son? It slows down the narrative. Come on, come on, tell us, tell us. The man who had brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark has been captured. The news Eli must have known in his heart was coming, but it is worse than he feared. The ark too is gone. When he mentioned the ark of God, verse 18, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He'd led Israel 40 years. The gate was where uh, the judges, the leaders would rule and preside. And so as Eli topples off his chair from the gate, his rule is ended. As he lies on the threshold with his neck broken, his rule is done. And the mention of his weight is not an incidental detail. The Hebrew word for heavy is exactly the same as the word for glory. And as his daughter-in-law dies in childbirth, brought on by the shock news of her unfaithful husband's death, she gasps out with her dying breath in verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark has been captured. In fact, each of the three little sections of the chapter end in verses 11, 17, and 22 with the refrain, the ark of God has been captured. God will not be treated like a genie, like a superstitious charm. God will not do what he's told by his sinful people. And we need to be careful because we can behave like the Israelites and treat God as if he is our genie and our pet. And we do that. I do that when I ignore his word and pursue sin and still assume he'll answer my prayers because, well, I'm a Christian. He's kind of on my side, isn't he? Or when I think my life should go according to plan, my plans, <laughs> and, and kind of just assume isn't, isn't God's job role to, to sort of bless that, if my plans are reasonably good, surely doesn't God then make them happen? Isn't he on my side? I should have the career I hope for, the relationship and family other people seem to have. 
deep down, we, we can make this terrible assumption that God's job is to do the bidding of his people. And I'm one of his people, so surely if I get the right formula, God will do his part. God is not a genie. He is not a pet. He is not tame. Chapter 4 describes a terrible crushing defeat for Israel militarily and spiritually as his judgment comes on his sinful people. But it is not a defeat for the Lord. Now we should know that because the events of chapter 4 are just a fulfillment of what God has said he will do in chapters 2 and 3. But in the next chapter it becomes even clearer. Israel may have been defeated but God is victorious. And we see in chapter 5, the Lord defeats a people who thought he was their conquest, their trophy. Now, the account of the ark in the temple is deliberately funny. It begins, verse 1, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they carried it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. It begins by just stressing how how sort of passive, how weak, how hopeless, how useless the ark is. It, It does nothing. The Philistines captured, took, carried, set it. This great symbol of the mighty power of God amongst his people. And it's, it's just like any other dumb idol. Lump of wood covered in gold that gets trucked around and lugged as a, a trophy of war back home. Now they take it um, 40 miles um, and they take it all the way down to Ashdod, away from Ebenezer rather than to one of the nearer cities because that's where the great temple of their god Dagon is. And so they, uh, they set the ark beside Dagon's mighty statue, humiliated, a trophy of war for Dagon to rule over. Ha, ha, ha. Utter humiliation. Until the next morning, of course, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Oops. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Mighty Dagon requires a little bit of DIY. Um, you know, got to make our mighty God a little less wobbly on his feet. Um, you know, strapping on the wall or whatever it is. All sorted. Until the next morning, verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Like Eli... Dagon lies on the threshold, neck broken, rule ended. His hands, the symbol of his power, snapped off. He's literally been disarmed and he's been beheaded, completely defeated. Now the next verse, you really ought to be shaking your head at the sheer stupidity of the next verse. Verse 5, that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. That's the lesson you learn from this. Dagon fell in front of the the ark of the Lord and he fell across the threshold. So the threshold is now holy because mighty Dagon was crushed to death there. So we better not... Really? I think that the real lesson was probably just too unthinkable because the real lesson of course is how Dagon's not God at all and we ought to fall before the God of the ark and worship him instead but that's quite a big thing to do actually the Philistines they don't learn 
Some years before, they paraded another trophy of war with Israel in the temple of Dagon. This time it wasn't an ark filled with the Spirit of God, it was a man anointed by the Spirit of God, Samson. And he destroyed not the statue, but the whole temple. They just don't learn. Now, if the account of the ark in the temple is comedy, the account of what happens to the people outside the temple is it's more of a horror story than a comedy. Verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. The Philistines were afraid before the battle because the ark was in the camp of Israel. They now find it's a whole lot more scary to have the ark in your own town. So how did they choose uh, to send it to Gath? I have no idea. I think it was the ruler of Gath off playing golf. So the others all said, who votes for Gath? <laughs> Great, Gath it is. Or, or maybe he was just such an arrogant fool. He said, this is our oh, mighty Dagon. This is just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. Send the ark to Gath. Let us show you. Let us show you. Whatever the case, the people of Gath are soon begging for the ark to be taken away. Verse 9, after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city too, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of the Lord of uh, the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Can you imagine the panic in, in Ekron as they see the wagon approach with the ark on the back? I find the last phrase stunning, actually. The outcry of the city went up to heaven. God hears the cry of a pagan people who have been oppressing his own people for decades and have just slaughtered his people in battle. But when they cry to the God of heaven, he hears. Uh, whoever you are tonight, whatever you've done, if you cry to the God of heaven, if he hears Philistines, he'll hear you. He's a wonderfully gracious God. See, the Philistines' problem is that they looked at the defeat that they'd inflicted on the Israelites and assumed if we've beaten the Israelites, their God must suck. He must be pathetic. And many make the same mistake today. They see the apparent defeat of Christianity in the UK and in Western culture and think, well, and, you know, the steady decline of the church. It seems every weekend there's an op-ed about how the, the church has got to change because it's dwindling away, flatline decline. There'll be no, nobody in church in 20 years' time, whatever they tell you. And then the assumption that comes from that is, well, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a, he's a powerless idea, an empty myth. 
a relic of a more credulous religious age. The weakness of God's people leads the opinion writers and formers of our day to mock Jesus, to think he's nothing. I mean, he can't be. I mean, look at his church. It's pathetic. But Jesus is the living God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the conqueror of death. He may allow his church to be disciplined at times, but he is not defeated. See, the Philistine leaders, they shut the ark in Dagon's temple while they gloated about their victory over the God of Israel until the next morning. Years later, another group of leaders shut in a tomb the Son of God and gloated after they'd scattered his followers and put him to death. Until three days later in the morning, he left not a statue, but the devil and sin and death face down, broken necked, defeated as he walked out of the tomb. Jesus is never defeated. Okay, so, so what should we do? What should we do? The Philistine response is, get rid of the ark. <laughs> and chapter 7 is basically the story of them getting rid of the ark. They are terrified. They've learned God is not small and pathetic, and so they just run away is their response. We can fall into a similar mistake when we realise God is not a pet, a pal. And instead of being flippant and blasé, we become fearful and despairing. When we do imagine God, we imagine him glowering in the sky, looking down, just waiting to fling his thunderbolts at us the next time we, we annoy him, try his patience, fall into sin. And so we try to avoid him, as the Philistines do. But the right response is to treat God as God and seek his mercy. Treat God as God and seek his mercy. We do need to repent. I think probably all of us, I know I do, of some of the just disrespectful, casual attitudes I have towards God. But the answer isn't then to run away in fear. It's to run towards him for mercy. See, never forget what the fulfillment of the ark was. I told you it was the throne of God on earth. Well, the fulfillment of the throne of God on earth is it's the cross. That's where Jesus is raised up with a crown on his head and a sign proclaiming his kingship above him. But the ark, like the cross, is not only about rule. See, the... The top, the seat, the throne of the ark was called the atonement cover or mercy seat. It's where the blood of the atonement sacrifice was sprinkled once a year. And the cross is the true throne of atonement where God's mercy reigns. See, the cross is Jesus' great victory as we celebrated after the confession. But it's not a victory over us, it's a victory for us as Jesus shatters sin and death and, and the devil. He triumphs over the devil who accuses you, over the sins that enslave you and the death that you and I deserve. And so when we come to this almighty God, humbly and on our knees, we find mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. 
I want to tell you as we close that the real untamable God is better than the pet God you and I so often want. He is better than the God who just blesses our plans and gives us what we think we need. He is a dangerously holy, untamably powerful, mighty God. And I guess when we, when we think about the, the, the Philistine thing, the, the thought of opposition, of, of the death and, and some of the sins that we're struggling with, we like the thought of an almighty God. But he's also better than the genie the Israelites thought they had, one who just does whatever we ask. He is better because his plans are far better than what you and I would ask for. If God had done everything the Israelites asked of him, Jesus would never have come. You do know that. If God had just done what the Israelites asked, baptized their plans, answered their every prayer, Jesus would never have come and died for sin because they never asked for that. And if God just did whatever you and I ask, we would never get what's best. Because we're too busy asking for temporary, earthly things most of the time. And his plans for us are infinitely, eternally better than what we ask for. He is at work to bring about your salvation and the holiness which will bring eternal happiness. So repent of the shallow notions of God we have and come back to him tonight trusting in Jesus' death. And when you do, you will find forgiveness and you'll find welcome and you'll find help and you'll find comfort and you'll find rescue and you'll find rest. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are so much greater than the God that the Israelites thought you were or the God's the Philistines assumed you were. Father, help us to see how glorious, how mighty, how transcendent you are and help us to revel in that, to rejoice in it, to humble ourselves before you and to enjoy you being God and living under your rule. Amen.